0: Good evening, and welcome to the Urban Village, where the community, the village, and the old school house party is alive and well. Welcome. I'm Colette Barris, host creator of the Urban Village. It's Friday, 8 o'clock in Los Angeles, and it is crazy. Yes, it's late for me. I'm normally done and just doing what I need to do to get the podcast to you. But it must be a half million more people in Los Angeles, everywhere. Of course, they're coming in for the Super Bowl. So what can you do? But I wanna say happy Black History Month. We're almost in the middle of the month and I have not addressed it, but I am right now. So where did it come from? How did it get started? Early years of Carter G. Woodson. He had to overcome many obstacles to become a prominent historian and author of several books. He was born in 1875 to illiterate parents who had been former slaves. Woodson's schooling was erratic. He helped out his family on the farm when he was a young boy and as a teen he worked in the coal mines of West Virginia. Yes the coal mines. Home before education he was largely self-taught and mastered common school subjects by the age of 17. He entered high school at the age of 20. He went on to complete his diploma in less than two years. He worked as a teacher and a school principal before obtaining a bachelor's degree in literature from Berea College in Kentucky. After graduating from college, he became a school supervisor in the Philippines and later traveled throughout Europe and Asia. In addition to earning a master's degree from the University of Chicago, he became the second black after W.E.B. Du Bois to earn a degree from Harvard, he joined the faculty of Howard University and became the dean of the College of Arts and Science. So, Carter G. Woodson, who was a prolific, he started what was called the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915, and it was his mission to make sure there was like a periodical or a journal there that discussed our life. Uh, The journal was very popular. He went on, as I said, to go to Harvard and work as the dean, earn his PhD. And he went from Black History Day to Black History Week to Black History Month. We got Black History Month back in 1989. So... Carter G. Woodson, we thank you. We thank you. We stand on your shoulders, your back, and we know the sacrifice. Can you imagine not being able to really go to school, working in the coal mines of Kentucky, um, self-taught until 17, didn't start high school until he was 20, and uh, went on and finished in two years, went to college, Became a teacher of other students, then went and got his bachelor's degree, went and got his master's degree from the University of Chicago, and then his PhD in history. Only second, the only second black man to W.E.B. Du Bois. What an amazing life. So we want to say thank you. And I hope all of us, young, particularly the young, that you take the time. To study our history. No, it's not social media. No, it's not TikTok. No, it's not WhatsApp. It's not IG. It's not Twitter. But it's our life. And what an amazing life. What an amazing contribution we have made. And the obstacles we continue to have to um, overcome. Let this be motivation for you. Thank you, Carter G. Woodson. And I want to go on and just make the next 27 minutes all black history. You know, we can talk about other things, it's going to be there, but this is history that if we don't pay attention, we will lose. And I think it's important that, you know, we just kind of hit on it. You need to understand something, and uh, Joe Madison, the black eagle, spoke on it during his hunger fast. And he said, we're entering the third wave of Reconstruction. We had the second at the end of the Civil War, Reconstruction, the rebuilding of America, where it was like for a really short period of time, I'm talking less than five years, Black people made tremendous strides. We had the Freemen's Bureau, the Freemen's Bureau was started to give enslaved, now free men and women of color the opportunity to educate themselves, to develop their own skill sets, their own businesses, their own banking systems. But of course the greed of certain other people just couldn't help themselves. So you know, I'm gonna digress for a moment and say, hmm, at what point is it enough? You know, the fundamental question, at what point the descendants of the enslavers. Is it enough? I'm just thinking about during Reconstruction, the Freemans Bureau, the Freemans Bank, where black people took their pennies, their nickels, their not even quarters in their, in their dimes, and they saved over $3 million. $3 million. Imagine what that would be today, only to have it stolen away by the very people that enslaved them. Our ancestors were over 400. And you gotta think about it. This country has immense wealth because Africans who were stolen and then enslaved and then in America were bred. Because you have to know that Virginia was a breeding state. You know, like you have animals and that kind of thing. It was a place where, you know, people were bred when it became too much of a struggle to go into Africa and to uh, essentially murder and plunder and rob and rape. They were bred here. But how much is enough? How much is enough? How much wealth? But, you know, anyway, they took the money out of the Freemans Bureau Bank, stole it, lost it, plundered it, and there went the savings of people who came from nothing. And so, you know, it's a little frustrating, not a little, it's a hell of a frustration for me when I hear people who know nothing about the black experience and the worth that we have, who say, why can't you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps? I came here with nothing and look at me now. You know, it's like, we we have to be, we're conditioned not to respond because How many of you who are not Black have said or been privy to those conversations? You know, we have to endure so much, so much, for lack of a better word, because of the ignorance and the pervasive, just inability for those in political, government, financial power To not see the wrong. I'd like for someone to tell me another group of human beings that have had to endure in modern history what black people, the African diaspora in America, have had to endure. And yet, we cannot give reparations. And it's not like we're getting a handout. We're just asking to be compensated for building this great nation because we literally did build it. Benjamin Banneker, a renowned mathematician known for his clock making. Why do you think we call the clock in England Big Ben? You know, designed Washington, D.C. by the stars. Did you know that? He designed it, a black man. You maybe came from the Dugan people in Africa, in Mali. It's been a long journey for us. It's a long journey. And I don't know what it will take. You know, we have the January 6th people and that madness and they're reclaiming America, it was never yours anyway. Let's be clear. And it's like... At what point does the mythology... Remember, it's your myth. It's not your truth. It's not a fact. It's your myth. Stop. I don't want to hear another second about Trump taking classified documents and stopping up the toilet. Just arrest him. All of them. Anyway, we get no more time. Let's talk about some great facts. Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington, he was born in bondage on April 5th, 1856. And like Douglas, his father had been a white slave owner. And they're talking about Frederick Douglass. You know, his father was a slave owner in which he bought his freedom from his own father. But anyway, like Frederick Douglass, his father had been a white slave owner. His mother had been black. As a small boy, he was called one day to the big house on the plantation in Virginia, and um, there, he heard his master read to them the emancipation Proclamation and watched the tears stream down his mother's face at the news that they were free. After raising at four and working all day in the mines, Booker and his mother tried to learn their ABCs at night by the light of the fire. One day in the dark mine, Booker, T. Washington heard men talking about a Virginia school called Hampton where Negroes were taught trades. Remember, we talked about the Freemans Bureau. And one of the things that came out of it was setting up uh, the HBCUs, Historical Black Colleges and Universities. Because remember, Blacks could not and were not allowed to attend universities in this country. We had to come up with our own creation. To this day, HBCU. You'll educate more Blacks with degrees than any other university or college system. You must support Black colleges. If you don't, do it, do it now as a tax write-off. Even if it's not much, send money to Black HBCUs. Don't look for somebody else to do it. You know, that coffee, that drink, that joint, whatever it may be, you know, put it aside. every month, just send a little, choose a college, and send money. It's that important. But anyway, he made his way to Hampton. He received a degree. And what is Booker T. Washington's claim to fame? is that he created and gave us to Skega in Alabama. And it was Booker T. Washington is where we get the whole idea of pulling oneself up by the bootstraps. But what makes the intersect of Booker T. Washington and creating Tuskegee, which is still an amazing university, they have an excellent school of veterinary science. And I always, you know, there's so many young people of color who like love animals now. Go be a vet, go be a vet. There's lots of places in the HBCUs for you to go. Go do it, go be a doctor. There's lots of schools that you can go become a doctor. Don't be frightened because you don't have a 4.9 GPA. You will be supported. That's the beauty and the love of HBCUs. And that's why I say everybody choose and pick, adopt and send money, because it's for our future, our children. But Booker T. Washington, he met and encouraged and got the luck of luck when he ran into George Washington Carver. Now George Washington Carver, again, another black man, born sometime in the mid-1800s. He doesn't know his birth date because he was born a slave, him and his mother. They were stolen off a plantation, him, his mother, and his brother, they tried to escape. His mother was sold away. He never knew his father and he, Uh, eventually you know was sold to other white families and he went on he had this love affair this amazing gift this chaotic genius gift to be able to understand nature at a very early age. We know the story of George Washington Carver and his more than 300 different uses for peanuts, for sweet potatoes, um, for soybeans he was a genius, and he was very good friends with Henry Ford. Henry Ford was able to do the things he did in his car factory, the Model T, because of the knowledge and the information that he relied on from Booker T. Wall, excuse me, from George Washington Carver. I get sometimes the two intertwined. George Washington Carver was known all around the world, and I saw an article. I, I want to say you know, I really like Slate or something I, I don't remember and it said is George Washington Carver's reputation kind of blown up are we over exaggerating and I'm like you know what the hell what, how, how can we over exaggerate his genius again again that is not even enough for discussion at all at all I, I just, it's, you know, white supremacy just can't handle it. There's always a slant. <laughs> but anyway, yes, he was that brilliant. And he literally helped to build Tuskegee. He had his students building Tuskegee. And he changed the way. He said that when he came into Alabama, he saw the land, the people, the animals, they all looked hungry. They all looked famished because the soil was so poor. And therefore, everything that depended on the soil for life, and nutrients, new plants and animals, had that same look. And he came in and he began to teach black people how to treat the soil, how to recognize edible plants, how to keep their animals uh, well. He did all this, all of it. And at the same time, he was being known around the world. During the Second World War, when there was a shortage of materials, they went to George Washington Carver again. He spoke to Congress, who tried to belittle this man. And eventually, a couple of congressmen who were listening realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. This man has some valuable information. Let me be quiet. He spoke to the Congress for probably seven hours. They gave him a standing ovation. He used peanuts, yams, beans to come up with different uses and make paints, etc. When there was a shortage during the war, and remember, he didn't take and patent these things on his own. What he what he didn't give to Tuskegee, he gave to the federal government. He helped Henry Ford. Right. He was an amazing, amazing being amazing scientist, just gifted. Um, he had a tragic accident he fell down some stairs in his late 70s, probably broke his hip and bled out. And the story goes that upon examining his body in terms of deficit and examining him, we discovered that didn't have testicles. And so there was always this thing of why he never married. People talked about his high voice. They said that he was probably gay. It wouldn't matter. But they said, oh, he's just, he's gay. That's why he's way. But come to find out, there is mounting evidence based on the death certificate that he he had been castrated. Mm -hmm. He had been castrated. Some people say wait maybe it was whooping cough, but you no. Know, looks like that that was the deal for him. So again, thank you, George Washington Carver. You are an amazing, amazing ancestor whom we stand on your shoulders and backs and arms. Thank you. Thank you. And I don't want you to think that I'm just discussing black men? Oh no, because even 400 years ago, 469 years ago, one thing was for sure, is that the black woman understood her ability to navigate a world where black men could not. We've known our power, we don't pronounce it. We do what we need to do to move forward for our families, for our community. And as such, I want to pay um, homage to Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, just to name those two alone. Sometimes we don't talk about Sojourner Truth and the sacrifices that she made and what she had to endure, which was tremendous. The fact that she stood up, she stood up to white suffrage or white suffracrats, meaning white women, who wanted to have their rights, their voting rights, their communal property rights with white men. She stood up. She went to Seneca Falls to the convention, women's convention, and she was going to talk about her work as an abolitionist. And she was told, you know what? It's really not your time. It's really? Can you? We just let us get out ahead of this. And she said no. She said no. She made her way out. She exposed her breath. And her famous line comes from, ain't I a woman too? She stood up. She caused attention. She made change. And quite often, we don't give her enough respect, admiration, and praise. So as we talk about Harriet Tubman, as we should, we need to utter the name and call it up to the ancestors, and we say ashe, to Sojourner Truth. Harriet Tubman was born sometime in the 1820s, we don't really know for sure. And she had been a slave, been born a slave, and she had escaped. And she had been savagely beaten to the point where she'd have, as you know the story goes, she'd have these seizures, and in these seizures, she'd have... uh, a voice or see or be told things were coming so she was deemed an empath or clairvoyant and she braved it all to make the journey to save, up, to save upwards of a thousand people taking them north to freedom and one line we always remember about her about Harriet Tubman is she stated that you know she could have saved more people if only they were, you know, they knew that they were slaves. And I think maybe we haven't learned that today because, you know, we can't get enough of certain things that maybe we should be paying less attention to and worrying about where we're going. Nevertheless, we stand on the backs and shoulders of Harriet Tubman, Sir True Next, I want to go back and share some things with you about history, world history. You need to know that every single human being, regardless of their, their vile hatred of black people, every single human being has African DNA. doesn't matter if it's point zero zero five or 1.5. We all have African DNA. And I say that to say that African history went on for tens of thousands of years before European history. In fact, it was the Moors who helped to bring Europeans out of the dark ages, going in to Spain um, in the um, peninsula area. And giving them education, setting up their first European um, university. But W.E.B. Du Bois talks about the number of blacks, or I should say Africans, who were taken out of Africa. It was upwards of 100 million Africans using ship records. That point on cargo, as they called it, contraband, looking at documents here, we estimate it to be about 100 million humans were taken out of the continent of Africa. Does that mean that they all survived? Absolutely not. For every ship, and did you know the first slave ship was called the Good Ship Jesus? Yes. One of the first slave ships, the Good Ship Jesus. Hmm. How... How ironic is that? Because we know Jesus was black. but it was his first vessel used for enslaving people. But anyway, if you had 300 enslaved people, Africans, you could count on about two-thirds of them dying. It was so bad that along the journey, if the stench, it was repulsive. You could smell it downwind for tens of miles. Sharks would encircle the ships as they threw the deceased overboard. And nevertheless, we made it, we made it. That was our humble and horrific beginning through the doors of no return. Arriving in this country, we were tens of nations, speaking different languages for which we were devolved of. And just think about it, you know. You can't name any other group of Americans that don't know their native language. Why is that? Because we weren't allowed to speak it. We were killed. We were forced not to speak our native tongues, our native languages. We couldn't learn to write. We were devolved of our native language. And yet, when we came here, because we came from a history and a people with great knowledge, we were valued. And that's what makes reparations. And I'm I'm going to take the rest of the month and give timelines on Black history and share out this. Hopefully you'll be able to refer and I'll give you footnotes. And if you need information about where the information came from, gladly, I will provide those sources so you can use them. have to take note of one thing we came with skills and value and that's what makes reparations it it, it's a must do don't say it'll break the country you know I had a a colleague not too long ago who you know we were discussing with students about reparations and this is literally see. They get the pass. We never do. And uh, his comment was, if we gave money to black people, there wouldn't be any money left for anyone else. And see, that remains a fear of so, unfortunately, far too many white people. It's that you don't acknowledge the horror. The horror of what was done. You just say, be resilient. You had time. Get yourself together and go on. Hmm. I don't think uh, Jews would ever allow you as they should not to remember the Holocaust. As they should. Everything they say they should do. But we should be able to do the same. I'm gonna say that clearly because I don't want anybody saying that I do not, or oh, I'm, I'm anti-Semite, no. I'm just saying they do what they should do, but we should be allowed to do the same. Huh. Well, next week, we begin at the beginning and we get to the middle. Remember the story is never told until the lion is the storyteller and the hunter is not. Be well, stay safe. Until next week, God bless. This has been a Brown Bear, Reggie Valens, Patrick Bolton Music, Don Carter production.